If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Endeavour was actually a really appropriate word for a very small and concentrated time. Think of people just roaring forwards, not sure quite where they're going, but going somewhere fast. That was Peter Moore talking about Captain Cook's ship, the Endeavour. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll hear from the writer and journalist Peter Moore, whose new book tells the story of HMS Endeavour, aboard which Captain James Cook undertook his first Pacific voyage 250 years ago. Peter spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. 
So our guest on the podcast today is the author and journalist Peter Moore. Peter's previous books include Damn His Blood, which looked at a 19th century murder, and also The Weather Experiment, which looked at pioneering attempts to forecast the weather. So Peter, your new book is Endeavour, which tells a story of Captain Cook's ship, which had many other lives. What first sparked your interest in the HMS Endeavour? Probably takes me back to childhood holidays, because my mother's family are from North Yorkshire the kind of coastal region around Scarborough. And so this is an area which is really soaked in maritime history. You could go and look on, uh, look out to sea from the cliffs or, I mean, every pub seems to be called the ship or the Endeavour or the Resolution or something like this. And every fish and chip shop will have uh, a model of the old ships in there. And I suppose one of these things that when you're younger, you... Um, you notice things and you wonder why or you wonder how or you wonder what this was. And I, I used to spend a lot of time on Filey Beach gazing out to sea. And, um, of course, you look into a completely empty horizon nowadays. There's nothing there. But, of course, 200 years ago, there used to be a big maritime superhighway, if you like, of all these ships going down. And um, it's funny when you when you look back because... You often get asked these questions of where the books come from. It's very difficult to pinpoint it. But I noticed that in both of the books I wrote previously, I'd mentioned um, Endeavour or Cook in some kind of very tangential kind of marginal way, you know, just as an example. So I suppose it was there in my mind. And then... um, and then it's this kind of... Uh, uh, as I looked into it, and I, I was beginning to form the idea, I just... I was really fascinated by the idea that it mutated from one form to another form to another form. It's a bit like David Bowie going through his various, you know, kind of in a, in a maritime history sense, at least. And, uh, yeah, that, that fascinated me, and I've just been going from there, really. So, as you mentioned, your book is quite good at showing how the ship took on many forms and was used for many purposes. I wonder if you could just give us a quick potted biography of the endeavour. Okay, sure. Well, 14 years is the scope we're looking at between 1764 and 1778, which I think, maybe we can talk about this later, but I think that's an interesting period of history anyway for us. Um, And within that, you've got three distinct lives, as I think of it, because you've got three different names in essentially three different theatres of history. So originally it was called the Earl of Pembroke, and it was used as a coal collier, which would be bringing coal down from the northeast mines to London, you know, kind of to fuel the industrial city. Then it was bought by the Royal Navy and re, um, um, what should we say, repackaged. That sounds a bit 21st century. It was changed anyway and converted into an exploration vessel and they gave it the name Endeavour, which is a completely much more glamorous identity to the one that it had before. Um, and the final one was as Lord Sandwich, which sounds quite um, a starchy old name. I laughed when I heard this, yeah. Lord Sandwich too, right? Yeah, I mean, and it was used as a troop transport and as a prison ship. I mean, the thing with, um, and people who've read, say, the Patrick O'Brien novels of um, Jack Aubrey and and such like, will know that um, the the ship's company were often um, referred to colloquially uh, under the name of the ship. So the people on Endeavour would be called the Endeavours. This would be, if if you and I were like kind of members of that, that, that ship we'd be called, you know, part of the Endeavours or the Earl of Pembrokes. And it always amused me that the idea that the sandwich ones would be called sandwiches. And, and, and <laughs> I suppose, this, and this is where the sandwich comes from, of course, because we have uh, Lord Sandwich who famously used to like his salt beef between two slices of bread. And um, yeah, so it has different resonances, a bit more pret a manger today than uh, American War of Independence, but... 
I definitely think that Endeavour is somewhat more evocative than Sandwich. Um, in the intro to the book, you, you kind of look at Endeavour as, an, as a name and as a term. And you, you spoke um, earlier about this being a really interesting period of history. I wonder whether you could just explain a bit about um, what Endeavour meant at this time and why it was so evocative as a name. Yeah, well, I, this is what really excited me about the story is when I, you know, you can write the material history of an object, which is the kind of biography of a ship. But I was wanting to look a bit deeper and try and find out about um, what the object told us about a time in history. And I thought Endeavour was actually a really appropriate word for a very small and concentrated time. Um, Endeavour is a very resonant word. It's, it's a word which is quite difficult to translate into other languages, I found. So I'd ask my Italian friends or Turkish friends or whatever, and they'd always come out with these like kind of long phrasal translations. And it's just an, an awkward word to kind of to kind of uh, pass, I suppose, into different languages. And it means kind of stretching and trying as hard as you possibly can towards an ultimate end. And um, And this really, to me, seemed to sum up a lot of what people were trying to do at this particular time. So if you look at the literature, for example, you'll always find the word endeavour before, you know, you've kind of gone too far through documents like the Declaration of Independence or even in novels like Tristram Shandy, it's right there at the beginning. Or you get to endeavour as a word within the first page, generally, because they're trying to tell you they're going somewhere. and, And then they weren't just going somewhere... Intellectually, they were going to places geographically as well, of course, which the book talks about. And so I wanted to kind of think about Endeavour more as a as a driving impulse, if you like. Um, and I think there were some historical conditions at this time which made it made it very appropriate. So you've just come out of the Seven Years' War between, well, broadly between the French and the British, but more complicated than that, um, uh, so you've got this release of pent-up energy. You've got a new king, George III, who's kind of imbibing everyone with a sense of purpose. You've got kind of demographic growth. You've got the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. And um, I think all these things kind of coalesce and it kind of gives you, for a very short period, a time of wild projects and exciting schemes and everyone's writing dictionaries and encyclopedias and things like this. And um, even Johnson, who wrote, obviously wrote the great dictionary of the English language, and you would have thought as a kind of arch-Tory and a churchman, he would have been a kind of conservative influence. Even he's saying, no, no, you should get behind the projectors and the projectors were the entrepreneurs of the day. Get behind them because... They're the ones that are going to change society for the better. So they kind of think of people just roaring forwards, not sure quite where they're going, but going somewhere fast. Taking that idea and applying it to the Endeavour ship specifically, obviously um, Captain Cook uh, used it for his first great voyage. And I think in this age that we live in now where the whole world is mapped out, we know what's there, it's hard to appreciate just what an Endeavour is again, the best word for it, this really was. I wonder whether you could tell us about how momentous it was to um, try and chart these areas that had never been charted and some of the challenges and the risks that were involved. Well, um, I suppose if you... The way you, you put it, and very rightly so, is the world is generally mapped today. There'll be occasional bit that we've got wrong, I suppose, but I can't imagine that happens very often. But this was 250 years ago, so not massive in terms of human history. And we still thought, well, shall we say, um, there was a portion of people who still believed there was a great land mass lying at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, the great south land. This hadn't been disproved. And so there was this 
it was the excitement of the unknown and the enticement of the unknown. And I, I described it in the book um, a bit like going into a big manor house and there's one room which has a kind of locked you know, door and you can't get inside. So I think that's where a lot of the fiction actually comes from, things like uh, Gulliver's Travels and Robinson Crusoe. This idea of like kind of secret places over there that you can't really see. It's kind of great for the imagination. Um, getting getting back to it, but yeah, the the South Seas or the Pacific, as we call it now, was a was a very poorly understood geographical area. Um, so you have ideas, of course, about um, Terra Australis or the Great Southland, and um, there's kind of some notions about New Zealand because Tasman had been down there and seen a little bit of it, but he soon got chased away, and um, and yeah, so that, so they they're going there in. Um, in the spirit of exploration, absolutely, and hoping to, you know, to solve some really big questions. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. I was looking at, it must have been a 17th century map, I think, of the kind of the unknown southern land mm. um, yesterday. And it was incredible because you have the west coast of Australia mapped quite well. Mm. And then you just have nothing. Yeah. It's essentially yeah. it, it's essentially dropping off the end of the world, um, which obviously Cook and his voyage on the Endeavour helped to correct almost. yeah I mean there was a wonderful book I can't remember exactly the title but it was published in hardback so a kind of coffee table book which is uh, about all the geographies that didn't exist that people thought existed at the time so you know like lots of strange little islands and and I think for a long time they thought there was a big lake in the middle of Australia and things like this and um, we 
you know, this is a real process um, where you have to think historically, you know, kind of don't look backwards from today because we know everything and it's quite difficult to imagine um, the state of affairs where things just aren't known and how how exciting that has to be, that sense of enticement. Um, and there were reasons why you couldn't get to the east coast of Australia um, very easily um, because, of course, there's a, the Coral Sea which stopped people going from the north and then uh, just the way the winds blew and the, the massive distance across um, the Pacific. And the Pacific, I, I mean, is such an enormous geographical area that... People thought, you know, once once you got across it, that was good. But actually staying there for any length of time was impossible with diseases like scurvy and things like this. So, yeah, these places just stayed, um, un, un, what should we say, unknown for so, so long. It's amazing. And when Cook and his crew did uh, land on the east coast of Australia, they landed at Botany Bay and also travelled to many other places. I wonder whether you could tell us about uh, what they found there and how they reacted to it. I, well, I think about it um, in the, in this term. I mean, it, it's again, it's three distinctions, really, because there were the three particular places um, in the Pacific that, that the Endeavour voyage took the crew to. So um, when you use the word crew, it always sounds like kind of a bit down with the kids, doesn't it? But <laughs> we can imagine them a bit like that. And in fact, that's how they are, <laughs> they are sometimes described in a deriding tone by some people now but they but they went to the um what we call the society islands today places like tahiti um and then new zealand and australia and in um in the society islands there was a real sense of um i suppose timorousness towards the ship because they'd had a visit from um, a british vessel a year or two earlier and they'd seen the power of of, of gunpowder okay so the people were very wary of that and it kind of afforded the crew a sense of um, ascendancy over the indigenous populations there. In New Zealand, it's different. You get the Maori who are um, more belligerent in their attitudes towards the ship and they try and attack um, uh, back to protect themselves, which um, which resulted in a few, what should we say, the very difficult encounters. And then in Australia, you get the most... Um, Curious. Well, the thing that most unsettled the British was the um, uh, the attitudes of the indigenous people around Botany Bay and later in northern Queensland, where you, people were quite indifferent. They would look at the ship and then they'd just carry on with what they did. And the British had been prepared for lots of different reactions, but they had not been prepared for indifference. And that, for them, was a, a, a real strange and unsettling thing. And um, to understand that, we have to you know, look to the Australian scholars today who've done wonderful pioneering historical work into the, the early encounters. And um, so you, you had almost what you'd call a standoff, I suppose, in Botany Bay, where people kind of kept to themselves, the, the Aboriginal people who lived in you know, in that particular area, just wanted the Europeans to go away and they treated them, um, well, they kept them at arm's length. And so there wasn't really much meaningful contact there. And then later on in uh, what later became known as the Endeavour River, um, although that was, obviously wasn't the name, then there were some more um, interactions uh, and that's where you go. The famous naming of the kangaroo and, and things like this. Um and, um, yeah, I mean, th this is really complicated history because Sapiens or, you say, the Yuval Noah Harari book. I mean, he actually picks the Endeavour Voyage out as one of the turning points in, in our human story, really, because um, it 
was the rejoining in a meaningful sense between the the sapiens who had gone south out of Africa and those who'd gone north after something like 50 millennia of divergent history. <laughs> That's a kind of crazy fact. And so you can imagine how much confusion was between these completely alien um, commentary on that from Cook in particular. I think you're quite open in the book, uh, even in the introduction, about uh, acknowledging that the endeavour isn't uh, a welcome symbol to everyone, and some some people find it what you call a toxic symbol uh, because it's such a different um, meaning for different peoples. Because you can, um, I mean, it was, of course, the coming of um, Europeans to the Pacific was catastrophic for the indigenous peoples of the Pacific. Some places. Um, there's ninety percent fall in population, and um, in places like Tasmania, you get complete eradication of indigenous people. But but that's a different history, I think, to the Endeavour voyage, which came before. And um, I think one of the invigorating things for me coming to this story now was um, was not treating it as what you'd imagine as a traditional exploration narrative. Okay. Um, so before, I mean, say until the maybe the 60s or 70s, these stories were told in a very um, traditional way. So you would have um, the view from the ship essentially looking out and um, you would get the, um, the moments of encounter which were always controlled by uh, the people on the ship. And then you'd get these, I don't know, like, very two-dimensional characters you'd never really get to understand on the shore. And so, yeah, it, it was almost like the denial of agency of these people who had no role at all in, in these moments of encounter, which we realise now is completely wrong. And also the idea that the Endeavour just sailed in some ahistorical wilderness where everything was like kind of, you know, like Moana, you know, like kind of the Disney cartoon where everything was just nice and humming along. And we now know much more about it than this because uh, there's been wonderful pioneering historical work by um, scholars like Nicholas Thomas and Anne Salmond over the last, shall we say, generation who've really unteased a lot of the biographical stories of these characters that Endeavour met. So people like Tupaya, who is the um, Polynesian high priest and star navigator, wonderful character, um, which connects the Endeavour story to the whole story of Polynesian voyaging, which is ama- amazingly interesting. And um, and also less social and historical background to what was happening in places like the Society Islands at the time. So they were in the middle of this great intergenerational conflict there. Um so they weren't sailing into benign water. They were sailing right into the equivalent of England in 1644 or something like this. This was a, you know, this was a contested space. So that was an exciting thing for me coming to the story. I mean, you're never going to reconcile these big questions of was it good, was it bad? I mean, it meant different things to different people, essentially. Cook's voyages weren't the end of the Endeavour's um, seafaring uh, career, well, it was renamed Lord Sandwich, and then it went on to also be involved in the American War of Independence. I wonder whether you could uh, tell us a bit about that. In Endeavour's life, we often think of this one great voyage, and I've come to uh, the realisation that there was actually two great voyages in this ship's life, and the second one is one we never talk about at all. And it happened in the spring of 1776, when pretty much um, the whole of the British merchant fleet was engaged on a short-term contract by... Uh, the Admiralty to transport um, 
an auxiliary army over to America to um, to begin what became the American War of Independence. Um, and it's it's amazing, really, uh, that we don't talk about this quite so much because the size of the fleet that was sent in 1776 by the British and mustered eventually in New York Harbour was absolutely enormous. It comprised the biggest logistical seaborne operation until D-Day. Okay, so this is, you know, kind of a big thing. Um, and, yeah, it's a very small part of this sailed Lord Sandwich, which, of course, um, was the old endeavour. And she was carrying uh, Hessian troops, which were going to fight um, against Washington. So there's this moment whereby... Uh, the Whitby Collier, having gone all around the world um, with Cook and and then gone to the Falkland Islands and comes back up to Britain, is then uh, patched up, filled with troops and sent over to um, to New York um, just before the Battle of Brooklyn and, and these major iconic moments in in American uh, history. And so there's, and this for me was really exciting because we know, for example, the association with people like Joseph Banks and James Cook and even Tupaya, but you wouldn't have ever thought of George Washington or Alexander Hamilton and Endeavour at the same time. And it would, it almost became like a, a quiz question to me. It's like, how would you join all these things together? And, and but it does, and it's there. We have documentary proof that um, that Endeavour as Lord Sandwich was there in New York Harbour, possibly um, taking the the Hessian troops over for the Battle of Brooklyn, which then became the biggest um, of all the wars in the, all the battles, sorry, in the American War of Independence. So uh, not just a bit part role, it was really important because you have to remember the big problem of fighting, a, is a, it was almost like a Vietnam War before Vietnam. You have this problem of sustaining a big army miles and miles away from your own home territory. These Whitby Colliers were again used and uh, I think that's a really interesting twist. I do think that is an interesting thing about your book, the way that um, you can tell three different, very different stories through one thread mm. of the same ship comes into this uh, history or st- storytelling fashion we have of the history of objects, which is something which really interests me anyway. And everyone who's listening to this will probably have some treasured object in their house that they can say, oh, this used to be my grandmother's and before this it used to be theirs and it used to be theirs and then they were given it by Napoleon or whatever. You know, it's that kind of idea of a heritage and 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 how um, stories can be held within objects. And sometimes just by touching the object, you feel like you release a story. And I, that's always been something which interests me. And, um, it's yeah, it's like objects are charged up with a storytelling power. And, um, and, and to me, that was the exciting idea with, with this. And there's, you know, purported scraps of, of the old ship about. And uh, although those have been proved to be, uh, you know, <laughs> not right. I mean, the idea that some of them were then later on taken into space or housed in museums or whatever. Uh, I mean, there was a piece of Endeavour, they thought it was a piece of Endeavour that was taken to the moon on one of the Apollo. This is the kind of anthropological power of objects. And uh, there's a there was something I heard which I really liked and it was, uh, you know, with the British Museum had their history of the, the world in 100 objects. Well, if you turn that around and say there's a hundred worlds in every object, that's a nice way of thinking about it because um, because that's a nice new way to get into history. So it's now 250 years uh, since Cook's voyage on the Endeavour. Why do you think 
all this time later, it's still important or relevant or interesting to be telling the story of this ship and uh, learning about it. To me, it marks the beginning um, or a very crucial moment in the development, at least, of what we think of as a consensus of the West, which which has stood for a long time. You'll notice that it's not just the anniversary of Endeavour this year, it's also the anniversary of things like the Royal Academy and we were also the first Circus Act and things like this. There's lots of anniversaries happening at the moment because a lot of the things that that happened about 250 years ago have have remained with us. So from our big societies to our ideas about the market and how the market should operate, things like Adam Smith, or our ideas of aesthetics. or um, Lots of these can be traced back to a very short period of time. And I think Endeavour stands as a bit of a, as a bit of a, what should we say, an emblem of that at a time when some people think we're running out of story, when we are having a bit of a crisis of, um, of what we stand for and what we're supposed to be. So we can look back, I suppose, to probably at the beginnings of the cycle that we're on now, when we begun, I suppose, nurturing these ideas about what the West should be. And um, hopefully, my hope with any book I've written is always to have some contemporary relevance. Um, this really, I think, is much more about the impulse forward. And at the moment, we're just talking about the past. And there's a lot of there's a massive loss of, loss of confidence, I think. And I think we need to start planning for the future. And if you look back, you'll see, I think, in this book, plenty of people who were doing just that. That was Peter Moore. Endeavour, The Ship and the Attitude that Changed the World, is published this week by Chateau and Windus. And that's about it for today, but do listen in on Thursday for more from the world of history. Plus, if you've not yet had a chance to listen to last week's five special episodes, featuring interviews with the likes of Mary Beard, Dan Jones and Ian Kershaw, then do make sure you check them out at all the usual podcast providers and, of course, on historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 